You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, you're very welcome to this morning's session. Uh, my name is Peter Crooks. I'm uh, from the Department of History in Trinity College, where I'm a, a medieval historian. I'm chairing this morning's session. Uh, you're very welcome. Welcome to the uh, international delegates who are attending this plenary session of the uh, Consortium of Humanities Centres and Institutes uh, on the theme of cultural interventions. And I think that this morning's lecture uh, will get right to the heart of that topic. Uh, welcome also to uh, our more local audience, uh, because this uh, lecture, as you will know, uh, is one in the series uh, Out of the Ashes, which is a multi-annual uh, signature series run by Trinity's uh, Humanities Institute, the Trinity Long Room Hub. So I'm, uh, it's very nice to see the, the local Irish and the global uh, coming together uh, this morning. I just want to say, before I introduce our speaker, a few contextualising uh, comments uh, to explain the, uh, the, the impetus for the series and uh, place it into the context uh, which uh, you are exploring collectively across these few days in Dublin. The series, Out of the Ashes, the subtitle is Collective Memory, Cultural Loss and Recovery. And that connects very directly with a, a major cultural intervention that is uh, uh, being pursued uh, by the Irish government and by Trinity College uh, in partnership with our own National Archives of Ireland and uh, the National Archives of the United Kingdom and other archival institutions. It's my privilege to lead a project called Beyond 2022, which is working to remedy, to rectify, uh, what was possibly the greatest cultural loss uh, experienced by Ireland in the 20th century, cultural loss, which was the destruction of our public record office of Ireland, the National Archive, uh, in the opening engagement of the Civil War in 1922. So the centenary of that archival disaster is coming into sight now in 2022. And Beyond 2022 is a project that is looking to the centenary and beyond, trying to create a, a, a cultural legacy uh, worthy of the occasion. We are building a virtual reality reconstruction of the National Archive and engaging with archival partners across the world to uh, digitize and uh, enhance discovery and access to collections that can serve as replacements for what was destroyed in the Public Record Office in 1922. It's a remarkable fact of Ireland's archival history. We're so interconnected with the uh, world that we have the capacity to do that uh, reconstruction process. Now, we also, this is very important to me uh, in, in the, uh, the way I think about that project, we want to connect that local Irish experience to the wider global context. I think it would be obvious to everybody here how timely uh, this topic of cultural loss is given uh, news from Brazil and Paris even within the last 12 months, but much more generally in terms of uh, the world experience of cultural loss. But it's a striking fact that we haven't, within Ireland, tended to do that historically. There's a, a very important report, which I know our speaker will refer to also, published by UNESCO in the 1990s, which is called uh, Lost Memory. It was a survey of the destruction of archives and libraries across 
the world in uh, the 20th century through armed conflict and environmental disaster and so on. Very sobering reading. But for whatever reason, I haven't got to the bottom of this. It may have been just bureaucratic oversight, uh, but it may also have been a sort of insularity uh, on our part. Uh, we didn't contribute. So our National Archives was destroyed within the 20th century. It is not noted in the UNESCO report on lost memory. Our lost memory, in essence, was lost to that report. So the purpose of the series Out of the Ashes is to place our own national archival tragedy in a global context to show it's not a singularity, to see what we can learn from the experience more broadly. And also, I think, as we move towards the centenary of 2022, how we, in the enterprise we're engaged in now, may be able to contribute to the, uh, the exercise of recovery from cultural loss. Uh, this lecture this morning is the uh, fifth in the first year of a three-year series. So the series is structured, uh, the, the subtitle, Collective Memory, Cultural Lost Recovery, reflects the way we've organized the series. The first year's theme has been collecting, the power of great collections, their social significance, what they mean for uh, social identities. Um, next year, we move into the theme of destruction. All these themes are obviously interrelated. Uh, uh, in September, the former National Librarian of uh, um, Iraq will come to Trinity to uh, open our uh, second year series. And in the third year, as we move towards our centenary of 2022, we will be looking specifically at the theme of recovery. But we've had an exciting year this year so far. We began in Alexandria, in the ancient world, and then uh, uh, rebuilt uh, on its original location. The director of the founding director of the uh, Bibliotheca Alexandrina, Ismail Sarigeldin, was here. He gave a, a, at times a spine tingling lecture. If you think of cultural interventions, he showed this amazing picture during the Arab Spring of how the young people linked arms around that library and protected it from destruction. So that was, to me, uh, evidence of a cultural intervention coming from the bottom up, not just from uh, any other organized power structure. Uh, the series took us to the meta collections of the digital era with a lecture from uh, Ed Parsons of Google about the uh, vast and powerful but also ephemeral collections that are our current reality. But we couldn't be more excited or privileged to conclude this year's uh, series of lectures with this morning's speaker who is going to introduce us to the uh, manuscripts of Timbuktu. I had the pleasure of spending yesterday afternoon with Shamil Jeppe, our speaker, uh, and you, as soon as you speak to him you realise this is a, a humanist in the best sense, somebody with a wonderful breadth of vision and sympathy. We were immediately uh, building connections between the Irish experience and the uh, 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 African experience of which he is uh, so expert. Uh, Shamil Jeppe he is Associate Professor in the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Cape Town and Founding Director of the Tombuktu Manuscripts Project, having uh, received his PhD uh, from Princeton University, a very distinguished speaker, a uh, uh, very uh, uh, wide range of scholarly interests, but specifically on uh, Timbuktu, uh, uh, that project which has really caught the imagination uh, especially in recent years, uh, as those manuscripts came under threat, uh, has sparked a series of very important publications. I'll just mention in particular the meanings of Timbuktu, very uh, 
fascinating collection working through, uh, through the, the, the power of uh, uh, collecting exactly the theme that we wanted to explore in this year's series, uh, a book that has been translated into French. Uh, Shamil is uh, on the editorial boards of a number of uh, very distinguished uh, monograph series on African history, including the, uh, the journal published by Cambridge University Press on history in Africa. So it's a, an enormous privilege and pleasure to welcome him to Trinity and to address us this morning on the theme Timbuktu and the mobility of the book in West Africa and beyond. Thank you very much. Firstly, thanks, uh, Peter. Uh, thank you for the invitation to participate in this lecture series, um, which commemorates the devastation of uh, the PRO at Four Courts. And um, to celebrate your project to reimagine and reconstitute that uh, records office. The willful destruction or unintended loss of archives, libraries, and books have long, dark histories, and it continues. <clears throat> the subject, however, appears to have a rather limited historiography and ethnography. And there are large gaps, even in the places where one might expect mention of it. I, for instance, who have been going through the literature, I did not know of this episode uh, in Irish archival and book history. And, for those of you who are staying here, should go and take a walk around the Four Courts, um, which is very close by. In the useful UNESCO list of major libraries destroyed in the 20th century, published in 1996, which is a fairly comprehensive list of about 70, 80 pages, the Four Courts incident, incident does not even get a mention. <clears throat> now, I'm not sure I have to thank Dr. Crooks or uh, Dr. Olmeyer, Professor Olmeyer, for letting me speak at this particular conference. My plan initially was to come to speak to a seminar of archivists and book historians and members of the, of the public, uh, see the library, um, talk to you, talk to some of my Irish colleagues about the Irish backstop, uh, because I saw that word so often in the media, I started seeing Irish doorstop. <laughs> I still don't know what that means. Um, but I'm now at a conference where the re Renaissance men and women of the world are meeting. And what can I tell them? What can I tell you? I mean, all the humanistic knowledge compressed in this room. I mean, it just makes me quite superfluous. Historians, literary critics, critical theorists, philosophers, linguists, you name it. I think we were about 145 yesterday. So um, it's indeed a daunting task. Uh, so I realized too late, though, to tell Peter. Um, I'm uh, sorry, next time. <laughs> so I couldn't make an exit. Anyway, so let me get started and see um, whether I can impress this group of humanists. So. I always have a problem with my PowerPoint. Okay, so I'm going to uh, take you through in the next 40 minutes or so. Uh, there will be some repetition because some people may know, others may not know some of the geography and uh, location, etc. 
uh, with the story of the occupation and the moving of manuscripts, something on book history in Africa in the preprint age. Um, and I always get asked now, what are these manuscripts all about? And I'll do that by focusing on the iconic scholar of Timbuktu from the late 16th century and say something about higher learning in Timbuktu. So uh, that we'll be looking at that region and where that dot is is more or less where Timbuktu is. I'll come back to, to this map in particular. Um, Okay, let me see. see. So seven years ago, uh, the Malian town of Timbuktu was occupied by rebels who came storming through the Saharan desert down from the northern borderlands. Uh, the fall of Colonel Gaddafi in Tripoli and the ensuing chaos meant an easy flow of weapons and fighters to take up a version of the Tuareg ethnic cause yet again. In March 2012, Timbuktu fell to the Ansardin rebel movement, led by a one-time Tuareg ethnic nationalist who had recently turned himself into a jihadist. As they took control, many of the townspeople decided to leave by whatever means they could. Taxis, trucks, buses, and riverboats were all filled with men, women, and children, and whatever belongings they could take with them as they fled. Most of them headed for the capital, Bamako, from where they would find their way to the towns and villages where they came from originally. The Ansardine rebels had sent the already dispirited Malian military fleeing. Timbuktu, as through its history, hosted Sufi or mystical orders and many Sufi holy men, widely known in Francophone West Africa as the Marabou. A number of these Sufi masters and their followers wrote, usually liturgies and poetry, but also arguments for their particular brotherhood or order. Their places of burial are revered in the area. A number of them are buried in mud brick musolia. Locals frequent these places and often commemorate them during large festivals uh, in these spaces. This was anathema to the jihadist rebels. Uh, it is flagrant idolatry for them. Thus, one of the first acts of assuming power was not an act expressing concern for the welfare of the inhabitants now under their control, but destruction of these prominent Sufi uh, tombs. The old quarters of Timbuktu became a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1990. These are sites around the world, now nearly 1,100 and growing. I think there are a few from Ireland on that list that have, quote, unquote, outstanding universal value. Now, Old Timbuktu is one of Mali's four sites um, on this list. The Musolia in the towns are thus of great cultural significance to the people of Timbuktu and far beyond. There was strong vocal objection by many brave men and women to this desecration. The response of the Atsardin was to attack even more of these Musolia, including uh, at one point even attacking the largest and oldest mosque uh, and uh, the one in the middle is one of the most prominent mosques. That's not an act of attacking, but that is the kind of thing that the Ansaruddin did. That's actually an act of recovery, of rebuilding. Madrid structures have to be replastered annually. And the other images of the Ansaruddin coming into town. <coughs> uh, 
to understand some of the context and the situation, I can do no better but refer you to this fantastic movie by the Mauritanian Malian um, uh, director, Abdurrahman Sissoko. I don't know if any of you have seen it. Um, it uh, captures pretty well what was happening in Timbuktu at the time. Uh, over the months, let me just stay there. Over the months of Ansaruddin rule, more people left town. The big fear after the attack on the tombs and even the mosques was that they would turn on other symbols in the town. It was feared that they would next turn on the prominent manuscript collections, um, particularly those in the state-run archives. The libraries of Timbuktu had begun to gain renewed attention in the 2000s, in the early 2000s. International attention could therefore be earned by the rebels through attacking the libraries. But this fear was unfounded. As the political crisis in the country intensified and the rebels made their territorial advances closer to the capital, um, the fears of more destruction grew. But by the end of 20, January 2013, the old colonial power was invited back. The French, keen to be seen to be doing the right thing in Francophone uh, West Africa, sent in the Air Force. And the rebels fled in their Toyota Land Cruisers, which had replaced the camels the rebels had not too long ago used in the Sahara. In the capital, Bamako residents welcomed the French waving Le Tricolure and shouting Vive la France. Can you imagine the trauma that some of us went through seeing that? They did the same in Gao and Timbuktu as the French-led campaign entered these towns. Uh, Hollande even made an appearance in Timbuktu, and there are some fantastic photos of him in Timbuktu, that is him and some of his ministers. Um, during this campaign, there were actually no fatalities to speak of. One French soldier was killed uh, days earlier in an accident. There were no historic, historic uh, heroic stories to report of soldiers in deadly combat and dying to save either the motherland or the old colonial possession. The battle for Timbuktu happened without an incident to file a sensational story about. Instead, the main story that hit the headlines on Monday, 28 January, was that the retreating rebels had destroyed the newly built archive library called the Ahmad Baba Institute Library. The name Ahmad Baba you will hear a lot uh, later in this, about it later in this lecture. And so this library houses the town's largest collection of manuscripts. Television showed images of what appeared to be manuscript covers or enclosures, and some manuscript was strewn on the floor of the library. It was messy, but hardly a picture of the whole library and building having gone up in smoke. The media coverage reported as fact the statement of a mayor of Timbuktu sitting then in the capital that the rebels had destroyed thousands of manuscripts. Most journalists just reproduced the story without seeking corroboration or contacting the management of the library or others um, in the town concerned with smaller private collections. Uh, the Malians involved in the libraries have come to be known to many journalists covering Francophone West Africa. For the next few days, there was an outpouring of rage uh, at the destruction of a library, but it did not happen. There was no four courts June 22 in Timbuktu. But uh, 
What also went with this coverage were vague descriptions of the collections. Two adjectives were repeatedly uh, and relentlessly used. These were ancient manuscripts and priceless. The manuscripts which were supposedly destroyed were of course not ancient artifacts. The only possible meaning of ancient is seen some sort of version of a French ancien before or former or old. Uh, we have not yet been able to scientifically date what our Timbuktu colleagues tell us are the oldest materials they have, which they claim goes back to the 13th and 14th century, which in my view, uh, based on other evidence, circumstantial evidence, is far too early. The other term used is priceless. Um, and this has been used to say, I'll just cut it very short, that there are secrets in these manuscripts, unique proof of superior learning in a mystical Africa. Uh, here the connection with the Sufi uh, uh, heritage of the city is, uh, is stressed. And a term appeared which I'd never seen before, uh, maraboutage. So it's a kind of magical things that you can find and I'll show you some images in a moment. Um, and particularly in fundraising campaigns, this kind of magical, mystical pricelessness of the manuscripts have been rolled out. Now, these are, uh, um, they refer often to the talismanic texts, and I thought I'll show you something from your own library. Um, there you are. So this is from Trinity College Library, because I don't collect these things myself. Um, this kind of thing. I don't, I haven't come across an Arabist who can tell me what these things are. Um, they are talismans, amulets, um, and basically made for private purposes. So you'll go to a marabou, to a holy man, talk about your problems, and there'll be a numerological sort of working out of, a, of something. Um, this is from the Trinity Collection, by the way. And most African collections have huge numbers of these materials, which we don't really know what to do. We do have a few commentaries on some of them, and there's also a lot of um, uh, sort of acronyms, that, but it's insider stuff. You, you, you really don't know. By the way, um, the, the, some of these things have been are back to front. So to your sort of the library, I can show the librarians what are they for. <laughs> so, so, wherever the librarian, I can show. So, okay. The so they're not they are priceless in the sense that they are materials of importance and significance to the local community, to people who had lived there for decades and centuries and had invested time, effort, and give significance to this. But we're not going to find secrets from medieval mystical Africa in them. In fact, I've been doing a lot of counting and uh, sort of very broad quantification, and a very high percentage of these materials are worldly grammar texts. And I'll show you some of that. In... So let me, let me, I hope I don't get out of this. Maybe Peter should just help me get back to the PowerPoint. 
So most of the texts are, in fact, a, or a very high percentage of the texts are grammar texts and commentaries on grammar texts. So on, uh, I don't know the point here. Let me just say. So these are grammar texts, and they are commentaries on a classical grammar that was composed in Fez in the 14th century. Um, and some wonderful lines on, I did, can't seem to find the point here, but the color, the red colors defines what is discourse. Discourse is compounded enunciation. It's not simply a sound. Uh, etc. So these are two pages from the most popular grammar that is used, commentaries, and this is a versification of that grammar. So there are lots of grammars, commentaries upon commentaries, versifications, and it's, it's a grammar produced in Northwest Africa, and it's probably the most famous grammar in uh, the Arabic-speaking world, in the traditional systems. And it was even used as the basis for one of the earliest Latin grammars. Um, this is a grammar um, by uh, um, uh, Thomas Obuccini, who encountered this grammar in Lebanon. I just, for those of you, the humanists who are here and, and are Latinists, and that's his um, commentary again on the commentary of that grammar. So there you are. So very little to be to um, say about um, pricelessness insofar as uh, any inside knowledge um, and, and, and so on. There are mystical texts, of course. Um, but I have been particularly interested in things like grammar, logic, uh, law, and so on and so forth. Now, the rebels were driven out of Timbuktu at the end of January 2013, as I noted and scores of the town's inhabitants fled. Uh, we learned afterwards that fairly soon after the rebel occupation of Timbuktu, families with manuscript collections were mobilized to move some of, or all of their materials to safety. Over the course of a few months, thousands of manuscripts from multiple collections were moved without detection by the, uh, by the rebels. So in the cover of night, packed onto donkey carts, taken to the Niger River, which is about 13 kilometers from the town, and then placed on the old pinas or old river boats, sent downstream, and then uh, by road to the capital. These manuscripts are that famous cultural heritage from the town, like the mosques and the Sufi homes. Now, a number of these manuscripts have been nominated for things like the UNESCO Memory of the World Register and so on. There are some exquisite uh, uh, documents, um, but otherwise there are hundreds and hundreds of this kind of, of manuscript. Now, how did these manuscripts travel from the heart of Timbuktu, out of it, to the river, and then to the capital? What were the mechanisms of communication that enabled about at least 2,000 crates of materials to move out over a matter of months without detection. And to answer that question, we encounter modern communications, mobile phones, and other mobilities 
in one of the continent's poorest countries. And this has become the focus. So no destroyed library was once for a moment the focus. Then this heroic story of moving. And there are at least two full-scale books that um, I'm always told about, um, written by two journalists, one American and one uh, British journalist. And I'm sure there's a Netflix movie uh, coming out soon. Um, so on this heroic movement um, against the jihadists, etc. One of the first reports, um, of course, as I said, was this library going up in flames. And there was basically one journalist responsible for this, a journalist by the name of Alex Crawford. I don't know if any of you have come across her name, but it was absolutely manufactured, uh, totally manufactured. She reported 25,000 manuscripts had been burnt. Um, now, I had never really thought how ideas on paper literally moved in the Sahara and Sahel until this event. You say this grammar text was used there and in point B and in point C, but how actually, uh, not some mystical knowledge going over from one point to another, actually they had to move. Uh, so Timbuktu is on the edges of a vast nomadic zone. It had emerged in the 11th century as a contact point for long-distance traders in the region. And this crisis got me to think over decades and over centuries about book learning and mobility of books in the region. There are so many pointers to mobility of people and their things. And prominent among the things, in my mind, were handwritten books. The manuscript book was among the things that the, the nomads moved with. In studies of African history in the Trans-Saharan zone, the items routinely enumerated in the trade networks, in textbooks, for instance, are salt, slaves, and gold. Paper or books, to date at least, do not feature although some aspects of the historiography of that region is changing where, because we're asking questions about there's no paper production in that part of Africa, no paper production anywhere in Africa for this period. Uh, so they came from somewhere. So the material processes of making texts and how these objects were handled, read and reread, often revered and archived in various ways, have been very far from the concerns of historians of Africa. Thus paper and pens and how texts circulated, how books were held together and the change of people, cha chains of people involved in the production of a text, from merchants trading in paper, to writers, to copyists, uh, through to whole communities of readers, these are slowly emerging as areas of research. The work on literacy, in Africa has mainly covered the so-called consequences of literacy. This has, however, underestimated the extent and historical depth and complexities of book learning. Uh, Jack Goody's famous work in northern Ghana uh, termed that literacy restricted literacy. They were basically making amulets and talismans and some prayer books. And that for a long time was the, uh, um, the orthodoxy. The kind of thing you see in grammars and commentaries on grammars and versification and logic uh, just fell out by the wayside. Uh, I think scholars saw these things and they saw 
uh, more of the same. So a still pervasive view of the history in relation to writing on the continent is that writing appears only recently in African societies. The written word are products of the spread of education under the impact of European colonial contact, especially uh, Christian missionary education. So instead of studying thought expressed in text, you have to go to oral tradition. Uh, tech, uh, and that's gotten us quite far. Uh, you might find nuggets of information and empirical data there, but written texts are relatively recent imports. Um, Africans, however, have used writing uh, long before the 19th century in the region that I'm concerned with. But it's not catching on. Uh, thus, it is hard not to see how the distinguished Europeanist Peter Burke confidently asserted some years back, in 2011, that writing and printing arrived in Africa at the same time and points to two 19th century newspapers from two British colonies as evidence. Now, this kind of thinking suffuses academic perceptions of Africa, and therefore we can confidently make that statement. Now, he cannot really be failed or faulted because he's not a specialist in the field. He's using secondary literature. What about the field of book history? The overview by two leading experts on the subject in uh, the Oxford Companion to the Book, two volumes, beautifully illustrated. Here, too, the discussion on Africa is on Africa in the print age and Africa in the Latin script. So Arabic um, in the Sahara and south of the Sahara, Gehas and Amharic used in Northeast Africa, um, which have long traditions of writing, are not addressed in the uh, Oxford Companion to the book. In the entry or the long article on the Muslim world, um, the attention is only to Cairo and to Fez. What are we doing for time, Peter? Let me just move that one. So these are some of the collections. Uh, and there are about 24 private family collections apart from a state archive, which has you know, 20 odd thousand manuscripts. But these are simply when you visit families, these kinds of things get pulled out for you. Now, the events of seven years ago uh, are only the most recent case of transporting materials, um, of transporting manuscripts under conditions of duress. In the Sahelian droughts of the 1970s and 80s, people in the far-flung settlements outside Timbuktu actually offered items from their family collections to prospectors that were sent out from the central archives um, to buy and collect manuscripts. Again in the 1990s, when the Tuareg rose up against the central state, there were books that were moved about within the city. Some got lost and some destroyed, but many were saved, but they moved. Crises and wars are not new in the area. In 1591, the Moroccans invaded uh, uh, this area of um, Mali, occupied Timbuktu, and basically it was the end of the Songhai state. And the leading scholar, Ahmad Baba, his collection, of 1,600 works were taken by the Moroccans to Marrakesh. 
throughout the 19th century, in the different uh, internal conflicts, books feature um, because scholars were arguing about amongst themselves. And when the French arrived, large numbers of manuscripts were taken and deposited in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. I'll skip some sections here. A recent, a recent case of mobility and scholarship and movement of materials, of course, as I mentioned, was this massive movement. But a, a scholar, one of the leading scholars of the town, during the occupation, there was no schooling for him to go to, no work for him to do. He simply sat down to copy a 300-page work. He made three copies of this work, and he found a way to take this work with him uh, to Rabat, to check in the Rabat National Library uh, his copies, the copies that he had made, and come back. So this is uh, an example of, the coll of, collection, of family collections um, for which very few catalogs or even hand lists exist. Those are examples of items uh, in the tradition in the region. You don't have a tradition of bindings. There are no bindings. All the manuscripts are loose leaves. And um, I, don't, I have no explanation for this. But all the manuscripts have leather enclosures. And uh, they would be uh, stacked on top of each other for obvious reasons. Uh, and these are the crates of manuscripts uh, that were used. These were the crates used to move the manuscripts from Timbuktu to the capital. Um, these were modern enclosures that were made. So a massive operation was undertaken um, in that period. Let me just, um, before I come to my conclusion, focus on this figure. Uh, because he is the major figure, and the main library is named after him. I'll just speak you through some of his texts. Now, in um, various listings of works from Timbuktu, he comes off with about 50 works uh, next to his name. Anything from 48 to 68 I have seen. He's the scholar who was taken to uh, Marrakesh when the Moroccans invaded. Um, and his library of 1,600 items uh, went along with him. We know this because when he was released in 1607, he firstly had some very bad things to say about uh, the rulers of Morocco, and he said, and give back my 1,600 books. <laughs> um, we have one work of his in English, a small work. We have a total of four of his works edited and published. And I have now set myself the task of translating with a colleague two of his works, which I'll say something about here. So roughly one before his detention and exile into Morocco, which is the first one. Sorry. Um, translated as attracting blessings and preventing calamities by distancing oneself from oppressive rulers. It's a political text. And interestingly, there was no cause. We don't know why he would write such a text uh, at the time when he was in Timbuktu. Um, for manuscript scholars, interestingly, there are always wide margins in these texts for commentaries. 
uh, and sometimes very wide spaces between uh, lines, um, also for commentary, but often to create, uh, to add glosses in local African languages. So this is the one text, which is a, a small text, and I'm just embarking on a translation of this. Uh, there is an edition that was published in, uh, in Casablanca, as you can see. This is the second text, which we have completed its translation, and it's the gift of the persons of nobility about the virtues of the scholars, the virtues of all of you, of all of us. So, so it's an argument. Are the mystics better than the scholars, the scholars who engage in legal disputation? And he's saying, Mystics are only for their own elevation. Mindfulness for yourself. Scholars are there for the population, for the community. It's actually very dialectical. And then at the end, but scholars, only scholars who practice what they teach and what they write. It's actually can be pretty boring stuff, but uh, there's, there's something in this. So this is the, the work which um, I've completed the translation of, and this is a work which is most well known in English and was published and edited by the Doyen of Timbuktu scholars, the late John Hunwick and a colleague from Morocco. It's on slavery, on who can be slave, and it's a question that is sent to him in Timbuktu from a town around probably a thousand kilometers away in southern Algeria, which shows you again connectivity, mobility, movement. Uh, he was not somebody locally known only. So this is a, a, a book, um, Who Can Be Enslaved? Um, and it is already circulating and, and well known. Now, there is a long history of the whole range of activities that we call textual culture in Timbuktu and the, larger, and the larger region, from learning to read and write to writing complicated theological texts and poetry to copying, very big activity, copying, copying and collecting, uh, memorization. Lots of those grammar books are simply memorized, um, and so on. And in this, the economy of paper and the various uh, modes of communication were important. Collections were the result of individual passions um, and they became family affairs. They were unmade and remade uh, across uh, the region and through time. A central depository for collections is a recent appearance in the history of the archive in the region. To say that a place like the Ahmed Baba Institute, the main state archive, is recent is not to undermine its necessity or role, but to recognize a certain style of archiving that was highly decentralized, highly diffuse, and mobile. That style uh, may have accorded well with a previous era when teaching and learning and scholarship were decentralized. But even uh, modern state, as modern state education, the older style of learning continued. Scholars, writers, and copyists worked from home, um, and they, they, they taught in mosques and moved about. So the appearance of the state in the archive is, of course, in keeping with the way states have attempted to run bureaucracies and foster national identities. Um, but they also have their limits. Um, 
as we can see when they are under threat. Now, this is what I want to talk about next. The, from even before the time of the great travelers in West Africa, from the 1450s through to the Scottish Mungo Park in the 1790s and into the 19th century, there was this fascination with Timbuktu. The first appearance of Timbuktu in a European map was in the 13th century in the Catalan Atlas uh, of, um, uh, I forget his name, but it appears there already. So this place has made it into history books and popular media for a very long time. The writings of travelers have all contributed to the representation of the region and the continent. And I am rereading all of these travelers and finding tantalizing hints about the writing culture there. Many of these travelers actually allude to the presence of some kind of writing, of notebooks, of paper, and a demand for paper in the region. The most explicit, of course, is Leo Africanus, who uh, went to the region twice. Uh, and there's, of course, the great uh, recent book by Natalie Zeman Davis on him. And he mentions the high value of books, and he says, higher than gold. Exaggeration, but I don't see why you should be lying to say books are so highly valued. Um, I found in Mungo Park at least eight references to a demand for paper by people he encounters. But Mungo Park then says he wants to write talismans. So he's seen talismans and amulets, and he assumes that that's the, that's the cause for the paper. Um, so there are these hints. One traveler was the Le Figaro journalist Felix Du Bois, or Du Bois, rather, and who coined the term in the late 1890s, uh, Timbuktu Le Mysterious. And this Du Bois was no relation of W.E.B. Du Bois, or as the Americans say, Du Bois. Um, the latter never traveled to Timbuktu, but he did actually mention it many times in his three works of African history he wrote. He probably wrote the earliest work of African history for a general audience uh, in English in a slim volume called The Negro in 1915. In, in uh, 1958, at the age of 51, he recalls his own encounter with African history. And I'll just qu quote you a line from a long, interesting quote. He said, I heard a few great men of Negro blood but I built up in my mind a dream of what the Negroes would do in the future, even though they had no past. And he goes on in three works to talk about, at various places, higher learning in Africa. And he notes in the Negro, in 1915, to quote him, the University of Sankore became a center of learning. The University of Sankore, that Sankore Mosque that I showed you, the beautiful uh, mud brick building. He calls it the University of Sankore. Became a center of learning in correspondence with Egypt and North Africa, and had a swarm of black Sudanese students. He says, law, literature, grammar, geography, and surgery were studied. And he, he, fantastic quotes, language was reduced to writing, etc., etc. Now, we took this to be 
overstatements, and they are indeed exaggerations, uh, but they were necessary at the time. Um, in his last work on African history, which published in 47, he makes eight such references. Now, Du Bois did not travel to Mali, and in fact he went to West Africa late in his life, um, but his three works of popular African history, uh, rather neglected and overlooked, I think, had a huge impact, I imagine. It was probably through him that Kwame Nkrumah also spoke of the University of Sankore, that's university in Timbuktu. The first reference I see to Nkrumah making this reference was uh, around 1967. Now, these overstatements don't need to uh, concern us here. He was on to something, but there was no such formal university. There was a widespread, informally organized system of learning spread throughout the town, and that's why we find so many copies of works, because these copies were used by students. Now, these two images are also from a traveler, from a French uh, agronomist called de Gironcourt, and this is what he produces. Uh, copyists, and he commissioned lots of copies of manuscripts. And I imagine this kind of informal learning to be happening, um, to be the quote-unquote university that uh, Du Bois was mentioning. Let me offer you some conclusions quickly. No. Archives and libraries as visible, publicly acknowledged repositories of documents and books are absolutely necessary and important places for flows of knowledge and culture. When they are destroyed, we often see their value for the first time. Uh, they are often located in the most impressive architecture, but they are also those in inhospitable buildings and uninviting spaces. Historians will know when we have to do lots of archival work, it's often that feel of terrible buildings we have to go into that they're cold, poorly, poorly uh, uh, um, sort of covered by local budgets and so on, and we just have to keep going to these places. Um, so they're not all uh, the long room. The destruction of centrally organized, I think most of them are not all the long room, I like that, coming close to that. Um, so the destruction of centrally organized archives and museums have known no end. The UNESCO list I opened up with of 1996 needs to be updated um, because since 1996 or say even 2000, uh, there have been destruction and loss of archival and museum buildings and, co and their contents in different parts of the globe. Um, and then there are those that have simply been forgotten and that will we'll lose in front of our eyes. This is one of my favorite photographs of the archive. Uh, I mean, this is, this, this guy is looking forlorn. This is, he doesn't know where to begin. This is uh, from the Central African Republic. And once I talk about Timbuktu and the manuscript heritage, within Timbuktu, there are also still the colonial uh, regional archives that are, uh, look more or less like this. All over the continent, we go to the capitals and we work in capitals and in the provinces, the colonial powers did not even take 
back to the metropoles their own collections. They only took them from the capitals. There are many, many collections in the backwaters that have not gone uh, to the metropole, that have not made it to the capital. So, so there are many of these cases. Uh, Peter mentioned what happened in Brazil in 2018, which houses two million objects and is I heard the major repository of Africa, the biggest, largest repository of African art and artifacts outside Africa, far larger than Key Branley and the other places that we hear of. Um, the earthquake in Nepal in 2015 had a devastating impact on some libraries, holding thousands of Buddhist palm uh, leaf manuscripts from the region. and. Uh, these have been lost or destroyed. And then there are the consequences of the US occupation of Iraq from 23 onwards. The military administration, alongside Iraqi collaborators, one or two very well-known ones, engaged in massive looting of millions of archival documents, some seven million pages in one estimate. They were simply shipped off, shipped, shipped off in a naval vessel to Washington, it was hardly covered in the media. There were reports about the illicit movement of Iraqi artifacts from the National Museum, but the looting of the National Archives and Library by the American Occupation Administration have received rather less, if any, commentary. The millions of pages of records are now at the Hoover Institute and will probably never be returned. So I think you're doing a great thing by getting the National Archivist to come and speak and to update us on what's happening to that. Now, I cannot predict when the Timbuktu collections um, that had been moved will go back to Timbuktu. I hope they do, because the one fact that you need to know is Timbuktu is dry and has been able to keep things uh, in, in, in relatively good conditions with the barest of minimal archival conditions. The capital 800 kilometers to the south is very humid and very bad for, for the materials. And you need a lot of money to keep air condition going in such a uh, um, situation. The challenge is to imagine these collections against the current location as once having been part of a living tradition of learning and teaching, of writing and copying, and of cultivating a good hand and a strong memory. Uh, they were never closeted. Um, and least of all in a humid capital. The dry climate was better. And while the attention, um, while all the attention has, uh, as what all the attention has done, however, is point to the necessity of interdisciplinary research on the making of a culture of writing and collecting in the region. Close work on a manuscript or a set of texts Philological slow reading is indispensable. Laboring over the close to text context matters to provide insight into the literary tradition. But the philological and the codicological perspectives on these manuscripts have to be located in their histories, including in their mobile histories, in their movements. The codicological and the social have to be brought together. And I see some of this kind of things happening 
in other parts uh, of the world with colleagues working on South Asia, for instance. Part of this is the way texts moved about, how they traveled, not in theory, but actually as indispensable as a central depository of texts have become, they were not the dominant mode of storing materials in this part of West Africa. People moved, and uh, so did their books. And I like this image without the dots, just lines, because that's how the things uh, happen along various lines. I uh, think I'll conclude there. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Shamiro. <clears throat> I think we're all probably making connections between that wonderful lecture and the uh, experiences we know so well. Uh, the thing that strikes me immediately, looking at the diffused uh, uh, and mobile nature of the uh, re records that you uh, know intimately, is the, the comment of the keeper of the records in Ireland after our destruction. And he said about 10 years later when he'd retired that the tragedy of 1922 in an Irish context was that what had once been fragmented and diffused had been brought together only very late in 1867. And then 70 years later, by virtue of that publication, uh, was destroyed. On the other hand, the, the capacity for us to reconstruct is based on the fact that the copies are diffused and we can bring them back together uh, in, in virtual format. So, uh, I mean, on, on the level of the uh, the, the events that you've discussed, the codicological uh, matters, the history of the book, we'll be making connections with uh, Irish scholars, I'm certain, um, uh, and in so many other ways, uh, I'm sure there are going to be responses and queries and comments from the audience. We have plenty of time for questions, uh, and there are microphones on both sides, straight away at the front here. This gentleman first, I think, and then we'll I refer to my elder. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, my son. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Shimon, for that excellent talk. This question is slightly to one side of the main line of your narrative, but you're in a position to help me think about something that's always uh, fascinated and troubled me, which is the analysis that Foucault offers in L'Ordre du Discours, his inaugural lecture in the Collège de France, where he's talking about the controls over discourse does the external controls, the truth-falsehood function, and so on, is the internal controls. The three internal controls are the commentary function, the author function, and the discipline function. Um, the puzzling thing for me is always his claim that the commentary function precedes the author function. So I was wondering, you've got both lots of commentary there, you've got one particular author you mentioned as having author function, the, the Baba character regulation. <laughs> uh, and do you have a do you have a, a, a an empirical sense of whether Foucault is right about that and your engagement with this particular body of uh, manuscript materials that emerges in, in the African Arabic world? And secondly, does is there a moment when for you a disciplinary function? Emerges out of the commentary and author functions in this body of work you're talking about. Because you didn't talk much about the disciplines in which these kinds of things are happening. Shall we go one by yeah. Wow, Foucault in Timbuktu. So <laughs> I knew it was going to come. <laughs> yeah, look, I, um, I've been writing um, 
at risk of self-promotion, stuff I've been looking at, is to bring some of these questions to this material. And um, they are, so in the case of a grammar, for instance, it's, the grammar becomes known by a kind of a name where the author's totally forgotten. You'd, so that text is by somebody called Ibn al-Ajrum. He's not an Arab, he's Berber. Ajrum means scholar in the Berber language. We know very little of Ibn Ajrum. In fact, I had to go and look up some things about this guy. You know the text as the Ajrumiya, and it's the commentary that's the thing. Um, and so the commentary has consumed and over, almost overpowered in those texts the, the author is almost dead. Um, it's disappeared. Uh, so, so there's that. I mean, there's a lot of that where the commentary is foregrounded. But. So that supports Foucault. Yeah. But uh, well, what is interesting, what would further support Foucault, even at the level of the commentary, is that in many cases we also don't know who the commentator is. The commentator, we have a problem in attribution of some of these materials, of quite a bit of these materials. Uh, there's a, we are involved in some quantification to see what percentage and what's happening, why so few uh, of these works have authors. And so I, being fairly old-fashioned, will go for the stuff with the author, you know, because I can yeah. hold on to it and we can try to figure out something. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, Disciplines-wise, there's a, uh, an article I did in uh, History of the Humanities, just a shout-out to a journal called History of Humanities, published by Chicago, called uh, Timbuktu Scholarship, But What Did They Read? And that covers the fields that they've done. It's fairly, I don't want to be, you know, it's fairly standard kind of, you do grammar and lots of grammar, commentaries, and then you do... Uh, some theology, very little Quran. In fact, in all these collections, you hardly find a single Quran. It's, so it's very discipline-driven in that regard. Grammar, logic, and it's Aristotelian logic, um, law, lots of law. And the law is, in fact, case law. So for social historians, there's a rich depth of detail because you state the case before you state the, the judgment or give an opinion, not the judgment of an opinion. And then there's further commentary. So there's a lot of commentary discipline. Um, yeah, so I don't know if that goes somewhere. Thank you very much, Ayan. Shimin, uh, thank you, Homi Baba. Thank you so much for the, this very interesting, um, uh, this very interesting paper. What, one of the things you did, the kind of probe or metaphor, I think, that links uh, very closely to some of our other ideas, uh, our concerns about migration, is that you actually talked about books as refugees, mm -hmm. books as migrants. Mm -hmm. And this is not simply, uh, you know, a theoretical or literary mm -hmm. fantasy. In 19, I think, 32 or 33, Raphael Lenkin, who was who then wrote the Genocide Convention in the 50s, and you know, was the great driver behind the Genocide Convention, he wrote an article 
uh, uh, which was a conference paper in, in Madrid, where he says the destruction of artifacts and manuscripts often precedes the destruction of people, or the other way around. So he made this very interesting connection between the destruction of heritage and the destruction of the human. And so I just thought, I wanted to, I wanted to say that. Uh, Jim, as often happens, you know, uh, asked the question which I want to then follow up on. And the issue that interested me greatly was the moment where you talked about the definition of enunciation in the ground. And it seems to me that, in fact, the Foucauldian issue is faced quite squarely there. Because, of course, for uh, 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 Foucault, um, the, uh, the notion of the author has to follow, just conceptually, the order function has to come after the commentary function. It has to do that because enunciation, the subject of enunciation, what he calls enunciative modality, emerges from the long, or the, you know, the parole emerges from the long. So one is always belated as an author. Whether you have a name or not, the author function comes after the construction of the archive or the construction mm -hmm. of the corpus. So I think that is really uh, his uh, major contribution mm -hmm. to the death of the author, in, 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 a, in a way, which is not, the, you know, a lot of people think, oh God, this is terrible because biographical criticism now, no, it's nothing to do with that. It's to do with the way in which you derive your voice as an author from the, the, the archive that is already in place. So I think that this notion of enunciation interests me, and I would like you to yeah. talk about that outside of the Foucault uh, function. Also, just to mention that, you know, with people like Ben Beniste, mm. the notion of enunciation is also an ethical issue. It is to be face to face with the addressed or the addressing. So is there in this combination of grammar and law? Uh, a kind of ethical mm. form of judgment. And in that case, what is the case law about? Okay. Wow. <laughs> um, I spend most of my seminars and uh, time in fairly confined um, uh, spaces, you know, and this is just mind-blowing. So, uh, fantastic stuff. I uh, wanted to bring in some way J.M.G. Leclerc's fantastic novel, Désert. I don't know if anybody knows that novel. Um, but it does exactly what you're saying. And the first 40 pages or so is about movement. So it's uh, a Sufi leader who is finally defeated by the French, maybe in 1900. Finally, and it captures mobility beautifully, nomadic movement. And then a love story follows with a girl who eventually lands up in Marseille, migration. Um, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of this novel, um, and it says some of the things, and it captures that world in the desert uh, very, very nicely. Um, absolutely, I mean, on migration, I, I, I watch all these migrations, and I'm thinking, 
Do these people have libraries? Have they left libraries behind? Are they taking whatever they decided to take? I'm thinking particularly of Syria, uh, because I know the Syrian library as well, and I've been I had lots of colleagues, and I'm just thinking a million people going. I mean, wow. You know, are there attempts to, on the German side to, to talk about this? And I know some of them just take the intellectuals to work in their institutes and so on, but very good, and I, I'm, I'm very happy you asked that. Um, far more difficult to answer your other one. Um, but I do have a published version of the grammar for you. Uh, <laughs> all 40 pages in, in, in Arabic. Um, so I always tell people I studied Arabic um, in sort of Western methods. And I then decided to study the grammar, to do this grammar with a local scholar who I at one stage thought wasn't paying attention to me, but he had memorized the thing. So he just looked all over and he knew what I was saying. And it was, it opened the door to me in many ways to learn through the text, these texts, um, which, which has been fantastic. And in Edward Said's uh, World, the Text and the Critic, in the first few pages, he just strikes you. First opens with Gould, Glenn Gould's piano piece, and then Arabic philosophical grammar from Andalusia. And then he moves on again. Now, I know some of that work he mentions in that introductory piece. I haven't discovered that level of abstract discussion about grammar. Um, but there's a basis for this. So this original grammar is somebody who was most probably influenced because his Andalusian Moroccan connection was very tight. Um, so I don't know the extent of a philosophical discussion, but it must have been there. And we can talk in greater detail about this. Yes, um, the, the, the case law, ethics, there are lots of, I mean, it, it is, you, you see the kind of materials people give you. You can only choose so much of this um, and, 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 and try to introduce to the scholarly world something more. Uh, and it's far too big for the few of us who are working in this area. The Arabists tend to want to work on the great Damascus or Baghdad and the Arabian Nights. No, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, this is kind of marginal, not in the central theme of in central area. The, it's, 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 it's marginal. But I, I want to place it much more centrally. So I can't really answer in terms of the scholarship in the ethical and the legal. I have some students working on these things. My uh, uh, work at the moment has been about the material because that's where the action is at the moment, so it's very much driven by that. But in so many ways, your questions um, are, are germane, and uh, I'll think about some of them. Jimmy, may I just with the Putin that to say, in the work that I'm doing now on the archives of migration mm. and travel, mm. etc., this is the most important thing. Okay, people I can now, see it. There's a lot of people say their iPhones mm. are their memory banks, mm because they have family photographs in them. They are the way, when they cross Europe, that they communicate with each other and say, don't go this mm. route or go that route. So in a way, this has become the yep. no. central. More, it's more important than a passport. Much more important no, than no, a passport. Now, I didn't mention that I was going to bore you with too much detail. But the way I had the inside track on what's happening was through that. 
through the cell phone because, I mean, I can go into great detail what's happening and how we could only phone within a two-hour uh, two window because the Malian state would put off the internet for a while. Uh, and then we managed to find out, uh, it's uh, lots of detail, but um, that is an important, was an important um, mechanism for communicating. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. I'll open with this lady here. And then you. I can use my big voice. Um, people won't hear you, please. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. That was absolutely um, fascinating, and I love the um, the analogy of, I mean, the, the, the books as refugees. But I, I have a lot of curiosity about the um, about the content of the the life and content of the family manuscript mm -hmm. um, collections that are in the, all those boxes. And I'm wondering the extent to which the content of each manuscript was unique. Mm -hmm. Were they copied from family to family? What was the function of the families? How were, how were they shared? Were they read aloud? Were they traded? Um, and what the nature of the family attachment to the family manuscript collections were. Were they treasures? Were they ephemera? Mm. Um, were they, did they, were people attached to them because of their attachment to the hand of the author who may have been a grandfather? I mean, I just, yeah, yeah. How, how did they live in the imagination of the people to whom they belonged? Thank you. Okay, I'll take that one. Fantastic question. Um, and I'm working on one family collection at the moment. Um, and I'm trying to reconstitute what I'm calling at the moment the, the collector of Timbuktu. He's a man who comes from southern Morocco in the early 20th century. And I'm tracing his collecting trajectory over time. Dies in 1955. So I can say a lot about him, but it won't apply to anybody, you know, to, to all the others. Um, so of the 20-odd family collections that stand outside the state library, uh, uh, we have a few that have been catalogued um, and that has had any work done on them. Um, and, uh, you know, they, I know from a, a PhD student of mine who worked on the legal texts, um, they have a, a uh, quite a bit dealing with family legal disputes. Um, there's also a bit of history that it's very sensitive, you know, um, paternity issues and so on. Very interesting. So we, that's why when I said the historiography of the field of manuscript destruction and movement, it's also an ethnography. You actually need to have ethnographic skills to deal with this situation, with the site. Um, and to get people's, it's taken me from beginning to go there to where I can confidently say anything a long time before I can say anything, before I got the confidence of people. Look, these things have been, why haven't people been doing these things for a long time? Because they've had people come in and out and try to do graduate PhD on it and it doesn't work and so on. So you just need a heck of a lot of time to get the confidence to uh, uh, get them to talk to you. So there's a sort of fieldwork type 
ethics situation as well, so where you can't get anything said. Uh, but I can tell you uh, details of the case studies that I'm doing, but not say it to everybody else. Um, uh, you know, say it for, every, for, for, for all the other collections. But there are lots of family histories um, which you were correct about. I'm going to take two together. So this gentleman, and then there's a gentleman here. Uh, thank you very much. As a, a fellow uh, West African from Kwame Krumah's uh, uh, Ghana, I'm delighted that uh, this event was organized. I'd like to uh, uh, express my uh, appreciation to the uh, uh, printing and our guests for uh, this event. Uh, you made reference to salt, slaves, and gold, mm. and that reminded me of a quote which I'd like to, if I may share with you. It goes like, salt comes from the north, gold from the south, and silver from the country of the white men. But the word of God and the treasures of wisdom are only to be found in Tibutu. Yeah. I thought that was a very bold claim to make, you know, uh, uh, that ideological uh, uh, from there. But uh, I think that's where uh, you are going to judge. Uh, uh, apart from Pretty College, the other institution in Ireland, unique for one streets, is the Chester Beatty. Yeah. And uh, they have uh, uh, West African Korans as well as uh, the uh, Ethiopian manuscripts, which uh, you uh, made reference to. Uh, since the conflict uh, in recent times, there have been a, a lot of interests mm. in Tibutu, over Mali, mm. and uh, it has also given rise to uh, books. So uh, <clears throat> I, I picked up a book recently uh, about this guy, uh, uh, Joshua, I think Hema is his name. So my question is that uh, uh, with uh, all these books, I mean, there is a story about Timbuktu, as well as the manuscripts uh, uh, themselves. So I was wondering whether you know of, uh, if anybody is interested in the story of Timbuktu before, well, not from the academic side, uh, is there any book which you would uh, point them to, to say, well, if you read this, you will get uh, um, a very good, uh, mm -hmm. uh, 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 accurate story of that. And I also uh, like to end by, when I was going up, uh, the Everly Brothers, they had their song, you can tell them about to Timbuktu. Okay. So in terms of, you know, a, a reference to Timbuktu, you might want to listen to the Everly Brothers. Thank okay. you very much. No, th thank you. Thank you for that. I'm, I do collect uh, Timbuktu ephemera. It's amazing <laughs> where, I mean, there's a, there's a Paul Auster novel called Timbuktu about his dog, about the figure and his dog. And uh, the, when he dies, the dog, uh, it, the author tells the dog, when you die, you go to Timbuktu. In other words, you go nowhere. Uh, it's amazing all over the place. I didn't know that one, though, but I've got the whole sort of pop culture thing with Timbuktu going. Uh, look, the... the African, um, in terms of, uh, the, the, there's some journalistic accounts which I have serious problems and doubts of. I think that book is the one that I mentioned is being made into a movie, uh, the Josh Hammer book. It's kind of two weekends in Timbuktu and it's out and uh, we're gonna get the Netflix soon. Mm. Uh, it's just very worrying stuff. It's so sensationalized. Uh, I know all the people he talks to and all the stuff that, that's going, I, I, I wouldn't trust that really. Uh, there's another book by Charlie English, which is slightly better um, on, on this episode. Um, I've basically been a dissenter around some of these things, um, and it's made me quite unpopular with many of the European funders who funded this operation, because there's a funding question in that. 
moving more than 2,000 metal boxes. People don't have money to buy those things, to be given cell phones and so on. So there was a big background story there, which I didn't even want to go into because I've been going into it too much and it's made me unpopular with the main funders because it's a question of development. Your development money and you get tick on off the right boxes and so on. Um, war on terror, etc. It's a big thing that I... Uh, didn't want to uh, uh, um, go on to in, 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 in the year. The fact is, as I said, the um, other cases of looting and so on don't get any attention, mm. haven't gotten attention. So we, we should be really careful. Maybe the very last Okay, last one. Thank you, Felipe from New York University. Thank you so much for this great talk, also kind of devastating the history of recounting of these and deliberate destructions, and thank you for the shout out to the Sisako film. Um, okay. I have a question as a historian, what do you think is, what is being aimed at in these deliberate destructions of libraries and archives? Because as all of us know, every archive, as you pointed out, contains things that are not knowledge, they are unknowable to us, or they are meaningless or senseless in ways that even Foucault would recognize are not just because they don't fit into the discourse. But is the gesture at the past as knowledge? It cannot quite be because many things in an archive are not knowledge. And is it at authority or power? And as we all know, there are counter histories and counter archives, or Diana Taylor's work says archives are not physical depositories of artifacts, but bodily memory rituals, as we mentioned before. But what's your idea? What is being targeted? Because what is the idea to destroy a depository of books that? Possibly very few people in this culture have ever looked at. So it's there's a gesture at something, and what is being aimed, what is being aimed, and then this, the the question would be, what are they trying to replace it with? Is it a revolutionary gesture to start a new archive to stop time and invent a new time and a new past for this new present, or to just erase the past entirely? Give one minute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. Uh, you know, firstly, the archive wasn't destroyed in Timbuktu. So uh, that story has disappeared. The story then focused on the movement and the heroic acts of uh, these people. Um, and the Sisoka film is, is, is important, actually, because what that uh, shows is that many of these jihadist rebels are unemployed kids who join for three months and then run away and then come back and, you know, it's, 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 I know the community pretty well, and some of these, you know, are, are they, they tout to work in the tourism industry, the tourism industry, we're going to join the rebels, uh, and so on. It's a, it's a very complicated story, and um, Sisoka touches on this. Some people say he's soft on these people, but if you understand, and he's from Mali, Mauritania, so, so the, firstly, and I think many of them were illiterate. They're actually just illiterate, and it's the first time actually that I prayed anybody was illiterate because I thought let them be illiterate and not see the stuff because I thought when I heard the stories of destruction that they were anti-Sufi, anti-mystical, jihadist, you know, Wahhabi types. Um, and I thought, God, I hope these guys are illiterate. <laughs> they aren't going to see the stuff because there's a lot of Sufi stuff there. So, um, no, the, some things disappeared. I know of about 400 or so items that's floating around in the market in Dubai or Abu Dhabi or somewhere. But um, because there's been long-term interest in some Gulf 
uh, wealthy people to just buy up the entire collection, to just buy Timbuktu up and take it away. That's their approach to conservation was buy up and ship off um, because we can do a better job there. Um, so, yeah, in, in this particular case, there was, in fact, no destruction that you're talking of. But not to say that things don't get destroyed. Um, uh, and in fact, I, I think the attention should be to all these other forms of just withering away of archives in that provincial archive from Central Africa. Things just withering away. Things just getting neglected, uh, which was one stage the case in Timbuktu. There's a lot of that over time. And then suddenly, there's this global interest in it. And people are moved, and then a whole other set of dynamics coming up. But yeah, I, I'll think about your, you know, the, the cases that I mentioned in recent times um, of the, the American case is an interesting one. I mean, and you could look up on that. I've seen one academic article on, on that case. Um, and I'm amazed that there's been no, no big books on this case. Yeah. And I'm one, two year from. The, because the curator of the Baghdad archive has been going on about it. So if you follow very closely, um, that you can see there's a debate going on. Yeah. And it's sitting at the Hoover Institute, and we know the Hoover Institute. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Well, that's a, that's a very nice connection in terms of the series to next year, because if you return on the 23rd, I think it is of September, we'll hear from that uh, uh, former national librarian in Baghdad. But, it's for me to thank on your behalf, uh, Shamil. He's been on his feet for nearly 90 minutes, and it's been a wonderful morning and an enormous privilege. So please join me in thanking him again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Professor Omar.